Good morning, Southbridge. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Yeah, I hope it was. Nobody had a Thanksgiving but me. I hope it was. I had a great time. I was having a great time with my in-laws or town, my brother-in-law. And my mom actually made the best um, pecan pie I've ever had. Yeah. And I've had a lot. Uh, It has the goo of the pecan pie. And instead of pecans, it has dark chocolate chips. The best pecan pie I've ever had. No pecans. It's perfect. Nobody wants those pecans, folks. Universal law. Irrefutable. So we had that. And is it too early to say Merry Christmas or... Are some of you sticklers because we're not in December yet? That's tough for you. I've been celebrating since November 1st. But um, I wanted to say that because uh, when you leave today, we have for you um, a Christmas devotional. In fact, next week we begin our next series. Our lead pastor, Scott Lear, will start the next series, our Christmas series. But um, we have a devotional for you for this, the rest of the month, for the month of December through tomorrow, through the end of the month, written by Southbridge members um, for Southbridge. And so you can get one of these from the ushers as you leave today. And when you leave, don't forget that today is a fifth Sunday and we do like a dollar offering. So above your tithes and offerings, you can drop a dollar off or whatever you feel led to, to give um, to the basket um, out, out the door there for the Durham Rescue Mission. So something that we do when there's ever a fifth Sunday at Southbridge, we seek to do a dollar offering. If this is your first time here, we're glad you're here. I hope that you feel welcome. I hope that you were greeted. Um, our desire is to make a big deal about Jesus, to connect people to Jesus for life change. And if you'd be inclined, we'd love to know how you found out about Southbridge. You can do that by um, filling out the connection card, which you can find in your bulletin. You can take that filled out card to the first time guest kiosk where we have a gift waiting for you just to say, thanks for being here today. This morning, we have the privilege of getting into God's word. It is our privilege, and I'm thankful that we have the freedom and the opportunity to do that, and we're concluding the series we've been into, So You Want to Be Happy, and it's been uh, some tough teaching. It's been a very different list of happiness than many of us may um, perceive happiness to be, and this morning I have the privilege of concluding this series, and it's a bit uh, humbling to preach on something that you know very little about, and so let's turn to our Savior, Jesus, who is the teacher of this message, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray and ask him to instruct us this morning. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for the privilege we have of gathering in your name. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your presence amongst those that are praising you and worshiping you. I thank you so much, Lord God, for the privilege of you even having a few moments to sing praises unto your name. For those of us, Lord God, that enjoy that, it brings life to our soul to do that. I hope that you were pleased by our song. And God, as we open up your word, we're hungry and thirsting for you. We long to be filled by you and your presence, and we long for your word to change how we live. So we subject ourselves to you, we give our church to you, God, and ask that you would do something that only you can do this morning, that is change us, teach us, instruct us. And Lord, we thank you, we thank you for the privilege we have of gathering in freedom this morning in this place. And I thank you, God, that you would allow me to even say your name. And now, Lord, we turn to you and ask you to shepherd us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we've been the last several weeks as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually just the first part of it, looking at what you might know as the Beatitudes. And this morning we're concluding this series. And what we see here is just Jesus describing happiness. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 where we've come to this far. Say a few more marks and review, and then we'll continue the series. Look at verse 1 with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples who were amongst the crowd came forward and came to him and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Now we see an outworking of that righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now Jesus is teaching about true happiness, and Pastor Scott taught us about this word happiness here as the, the term is makarios, which really means like a deep-seated, rooted joy slash contentment. We really don't even have a word for it. So when you think about happiness, what comes to your mind? When we say happy Thanksgiving, what comes to your mind? Family and food for me. When we look at Christ's list of happiness up to this point, it's a very strange list, isn't it? I challenge you this week to spend some time online and ask Google, because Google knows all things, I guess. What, how can I be happy? What do you think you'll find? Lots of stuff. Actually, it surprised me because some of the things that were, were found pretty quick in the search were things related like to forgive and stuff like that. It wasn't really like Bible-based. So everyone's drawing from the story that is Jesus. Everyone's stealing from that story. But we try our own ways to find happiness. We've all tried in different attempts. And yet this is Christ's list of happiness. Makarios, truly happy. And it's bookended. Beginning and end looks the same with his promises of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about a real, sincere happiness. And actually what Jesus is doing, he's actually describing the life of a disciple. Not a list to follow if you want to try to be one and try real hard and white knuckle it and be a good boy or good girl, but he's simply describing those that are followers of him. And remember, his witnesses at this point hearing this message are actually his disciples that are investigating, following him, and there's a multitude beyond them hearing this message. Wow, what a strange list to share if you want to try to get a following. Did you catch that? Happy, although the poor in spirit, that means you recognize you bring nothing to the table spiritually. <laughs> you don't bring all your good deeds to the table and God says that plus Jesus equals come on in here. You're, you did good. Poor in spirits. Happy is those that recognize that you bring nothing to the table. Happy are those who mourn. That seems strange. Mourning over our sin and the sins of the world. Happy are the meek. Happy are those that have power under restraint. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for Christ. And then we see the outworking of that verse, verse 6, in the next view. Happy are the merciful. Your text might say blessed. It's the same word. For those that do for others what they cannot do for themselves is the idea of mercy. And happy are the pure in heart, those that have an undivided heart as it relates to the pursuit and followership of Christ. And blessed are the peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers. And we saw that last week. So Jesus is describing the life of the disciple I was wondering this week a few questions. I had lots of wonders in preparation, but is the kind of disciple Jesus is speaking of here the same as that we seek to be? Who discipled you? Were they using this? Jesus probably has a very different teaching than what many of us have come to see and know as Christianity. Or do we teach, by our approach to Christianity, something very different? Happy is the church person who gets the church on time? Who sits in here through all the songs, even the last song? Huh? Stick it to you. Happy are those who, I mean, what do you fill it in with? Believe what you believe, do what you do, imitate you. How have you discipled others? And with this last statement that we have today, concluding the series, the last statement of Christ's teachings on true happiness, he actually goes like to another level. It all really culminates to this one. Look at it with me, chapter 5, verse 10. Look at your own copy. Blessed or truly happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus says, and it sounds like the rest of them, but it's very strange, happy are the persecuted. Persecuted for what? Well, the scriptures tell us it's not for race or ethnicity or political affiliation, and people do get persecuted for those things. But Jesus is telling us something very specific about this kind of persecution. Happy are those that are persecuted for righteousness. Verse 6 says we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then once that righteousness is found, you're probably going to see persecution for it. Not a very popular teaching. Verses 10 and 11 are parallel. Jesus equates himself with the righteousness. Look at it again in your translation. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. That's verse 10. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Me and righteousness are the same. Same idea twice. Jesus is righteousness. If you're a note taker, you can write this thought down. It's a persecution that comes as a result of living out verses three through nine. So Jesus is saying, happy are these folks that live this way and happy are the ones that when they live this way, this is gonna happen. A three through nine kind of living. And there there is a difference between being uh, persecuted for Christ and being persecuted for anything else. You know, in fact, some of us think that we might be being persecuted, but really others are actually just telling us the truth about ourselves. Don't get confused. You might think to yourself, you know, I know a lot of people that don't like me. Are you sure that you're persecuted or you're just not a jerk? Because everyone thinks they're awesome. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness or living as Jesus lived. So persecution is not the same as when people confront us for disrespecting others or being a jerk. Persecution is not when we don't get the promotion because of our poor work ethic and you're going to say it's because I'm a Christian. Jesus describes the persecution in verse 11. Look at it again. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. Some kind of connection with him. And that's three through nine living. Persecution takes on all kinds of forms, doesn't it? Insult, false testimony, slander. And then the scriptures continue forward from here and you can see that it leads to personal harm and flogging and torture and then murder, physical death, martyrdom. And I'm so grateful that Jesus was honest with his disciples. And we know that Christ is truth. He is the truth. And he only tells the truth. And he's such a clear teacher to his disciples. What an awesome shepherd he is. He's honest with his disciples in what they could expect. In fact, he doesn't just teach it right here. He continues to let these 12 know of the future. Look at John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. He tells his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, though, they will obey yours also. He's letting them know they will treat you this way because of my name. Does that sound familiar to this teaching? Because of me for righteousness. For they do not know the one, capital O, who sent me. They don't know the Father. They're persecuting you because they hated me. They're going to hate you because they persecuted me. They don't know the Father's business. Why is Jesus hated? I mean, if we went down to, to, to downtown Raleigh and asked folks, hey, what do you think about Jesus? A lot of people in our cultural context think Jesus is okay. A good teacher, a great guy, loved the free food he used to hand out and all that stuff. Well, she'd get them out of a jam sometimes. But in Jesus' cultural context, 
what we came to recognize is that he was hated. And Jesus promises his disciples that if you follow him, you will be hated. So actually, Jesus' invitation is an invitation to come and die. Not a great way to start a movement, it seems. But what little do we know about that? Jesus not only taught his disciples about persecution, but actually um, he promised it or prophesied about it. And look at um, Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. This is not a passage that a lot of disciples want to hide in their heart. Then, so after talking about their witness in the world in the years to come, you will be handed over to be persecuted and, to, uh, and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Who wants to sign up? It's very different than just simply saying, who wants to go to heaven? Just repeat after me. Okay, now you're in. Isn't it a very different kind of teaching? Heavy. But it's not just promised to them that the 12, actually, later the Apostle Paul, who himself himself faced terrible persecution and martyrdom, writes a clear warning to all believers. And we've cited this scripture often at Southbridge. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's writing to a young pastor and encouraging him and warning him. Chapter 3, verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life for righteousness' sake, for the sake of Christ, is the idea here. Godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's not if but when. What are the differences between what Christ taught about following him and what is taught today in our cultural context about the Christian life? What do you think? You know, all of us have experienced forms of persecution. Anybody go to middle school? But being in middle school and the Christian life, there aren't always the same rules. Jesus is teaching a promise here that persecution comes to those that live out verses 3 through 9. And what do we tell people when we disciple people? One of the biggest differences, I would guess, is, is uh, not much is said about the promises of persecution. It's just not a sellable notion. You can't sell the book on that and then also write the youth version for the youth group to use. Nobody wants that. We want the promises and the blessings. We want the back end of Christ's teachings. We want all these things. Kingdom of heaven, we'll be comforted, we'll inherit the earth, we'll be filled, we'll be shown mercy, we'll see God, we'll be called sons of God. We'll enter the kingdom of heaven. We'll be rewarded. We want that. But we don't want the front end. So what we do as a church is we say, pastors and people in my position often just tell people what they want to hear and tell them about the back end stuff without ever telling them about the front end stuff. And then we do actually just service to Christ and actually defame the gospel. And then should be corrected. See, the scriptures are clear that truly following Jesus will bring many trials, tribulations, and persecution. Maybe some of you have experienced that. See, I've been wondering how strong, how strong could my allegiance to Christ possibly be up to this point as a 30-year-old. I came to know Christ when I was seven if I've never faced persecution for his sake. Now, the text isn't commanding us to go get persecuted. It's not saying that, so don't misapply. It's just a statement of reality for the disciple. Jesus is describing the life of a disciple. For the early churches, uh, persecution was reality. And they needed encouragement in light of it. Look at this scripture written to the new church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, Paul writes to encourage them as they've been facing persecution. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, not just say that you believe, but also to suffer for him. Believers need encouragement. Believers around the world are experiencing this very thing. We should ask the question, though, why would anyone persecute righteousness? See, this is, we could ask ourselves, you know, 
is Paul's writing there actually culturally relevant for us? I mean, isn't America the most tolerant nation? Huh? We're so tolerant, aren't we? Everything is, we're open to all things. No. You must agree. So how do we look at a text like this when Jesus is promising persecution and we look at where we live? I would say right now there are nations and countries that have it way worse than us for the believer. We are afforded many freedoms today. But it's possible, probable, in my lifetime, if Christ doesn't bring his kingdom, that what we see in Syria will be here. Then what are we going to do? I think there's Christians in America that say, well, God would never let that happen. Well, he's letting it happen to his, his children in other places. Why wouldn't it be here? And it happened to his son and his disciples. If verses 3 through 9 are true in your life, then it's likely some form of verses 10 through 12 are in your present or a part of your, your future. So why would anyone persecute the righteous? I mean, who would, ever, who would ever want to persecute a merciful person? I mean, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone want to persecute a pure person, pure of heart, a peaceful person? I mean, this doesn't make sense. Christ's teaching seems strange. Jesus actually tells us the answer in John chapter 3, verse 20. Why would anyone want to persecute this kind of 3 through 9 kind of person? You might know John chapter 3, verse 16. It's one of the most famous verses. Because of God's great love for the world, meaning people, God so loved, he so desired to yield to the best interest of people that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him, place their faith, confidence, trust in Christ, would not be eternally separated from God, perish is the word they use, but have eternal life, everlasting life was the word I grew up with in Christ. A couple of verses later, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Any of us that have ever hidden our sin knows what that's like. Anyone that's ever been paranoid for hiding, anyone that has to delete their history because they might get found out, anyone that has to hide their booze because they might get caught, you know what it's like to want and have to be in the darkness because of fear of being exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly, seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Why would anyone persecute righteousness? The answer, loved ones, Jesus tells us, because evil hates those who embody the qualities described in the Beatitudes. And if Jesus was persecuted for being um, Jesus, so too will anyone resembling him. How many peacemakers, those preaching the gospel of peace through Christ, are beaten, jailed, and killed every day. Well, to find the answers, you can actually study this. You can go like to um, aclj.org and look at the stories and reports. The world is much smaller than ever before because of the internet. We can see the testimonies and stories of people fighting for those that are, are imprisoned and beaten. Pastors in Syria, pastors in Iran, everywhere. It's happening everywhere. Why would anyone want to persecute righteousness? I mean, what's, so, what's the harm in that? Because evil hates the light. How many believers are ridiculed in pursuing righteousness? Maybe you've tasted this one before. How many people have ever been criticized for refraining from something that darkness calls good, but it's actually sin and selfishness? How many believers have ever been persecuted by others because they've said no to sexual immorality or no to greed? It's real. A note to consider writing down is that genuine righteousness condemns people then by implication. That's the whole dark light thing. Genuine righteousness, genuine three through nine living condemns others that aren't in that, that are in the dark. And who is in the darkness? Anyone that's not with the light. And Christ himself calls himself the light of the world. It condemns people by implication. 
See, what happens, it's the same as when I shared with you talking about blessed are the merciful. When you show mercy, it creates tension in other people that aren't merciful because they think, what are, you, are you saying that I'm not good enough? No, I'm not talking about you at all. Or are you saying I have to do what you're doing? I'm, I wasn't even thinking about you at all. It creates tension in those that are not living in righteousness. That's why the darkness hates the light. I shared a story, Scott, I shared this before with the church, you know, several months ago, Scott took a break, uh, maybe just a couple weeks, of not eating meat. And as a church staff, the fellows, some of us go out on Mondays, and it created some tension at the table, because why is he not eating what I'm not eating, what I'm eating? What's wrong with this guy? So isn't Scott just free to not eat meat if he wants? No. (laughs) I want your plate to look exactly like mine. Now make that about the faith. We want to make sure that everyone's doing and saying what we do and say. Because we think we're pretty legit. This is another answer to why people would persecute righteousness, because it creates tension in others. And now I'm guessing most believers here, most of our covenant members, those that have said, hey, this is my church, these beliefs and values are my values, and I want to continue to help Southbridge be a city in the hill, because really what I want is people to know Christ. So this is my church family I identify with. I'm guessing most of those folks at Southbridge expect pushback when they go to share God's word as it relates to some topic. And Christians do share about their view of God's word on topics. Now, we expect pushback when we say stuff like, Jesus is the only way. An unbelieving world finds it unbelievable. But that's really exclusive. Yeah, your problem's with Jesus, not with me, because he's the one that said it. He is exclusive. But he's inclusive in that everyone's invited. Isn't that wonderful? But not everyone's interested. So they want the result. They want heaven-boundness without the Savior. But it gets a little tougher when we talk about hot topics. So what does God's word say? We expect pushback when you sh- we share our views on God's word on marriage, gender, roles and responsibilities. Uh, are we allowed to take refuges in or not? Easy, no, not everyone fight here. Lots of views. It's actually most, what I see is Christians on Christian crime. Just destroying each other. Then we see some of Christ's promises. Slander and false testimony. Division terrible. This is just Christians against Christians about that stuff. Most of us expect some pushback from believers and non-believers whenever we seek to our best to make truth claims. But being like Jesus is more than just speaking. See, Jesus was hated for what he said, and he was hated for what he said, but also for what he did. He was hated for who he served and who he hung out with and, and who and how he served and how he healed and when he healed. I have to read a couple examples for you because The Bible's good. It's actually the number one seller of all time. Luke chapter 6, here's a couple accounts of Christ and his healing. And you'd think, who would ever be against this? You'd think everyone would celebrate, but that's not how it went. And the scriptures are just replete with examples of Christ. You can just write this down and study it later. Luke chapter 6, verse 11, everyone is hanging out in the synagogue with Jesus. And there happens to be a guy there amongst the crowd, the congregation, that has, um, the text says, a withered hand or a deformed hand. And it just happens to be on the Sabbath, and Jesus is always doing stuff on the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, that's Jesus, and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law watched him closely to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath, because no working is allowed on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. Oh, great. (laughs) You think to yourself, This guy's had enough trouble up to this point already. So he got up and stood there. 
And Jesus said to them, the crowd, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. And you would think the crowd would rejoice for this guy. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Another example. See, Jesus doesn't just hate it for what he said, and they did hate what he said, but they hate what he does and how he does it. A famous story that you might know, it might be hidden in your heart, in John chapter 11. One of Jesus' dear friends died, and his sisters were having a funeral, and Jesus shows up, and they were hoping he'd come earlier so that he'd you know, heal him before he died, but he died, and the crowd of people are at this funeral. John chapter 11. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of that dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you what I, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said, this. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now you'd think, how would people respond? I know I'm kind of pushing and belaboring the point here, that everyone would freak out and be excited. I just saw a dead man raised to life. This guy is legit. Let's look at their response. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Yes, that is the response that we want. But some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and told them that Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they said. Here is this man performing miraculous signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, I'd been to his house before, it still exists today, he used to be like the godfather of the religious people. They used to have secret meetings in the basement. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Why would anyone persecute righteousness when it seems to benefit all people around them? The answer because darkness hates the light. When have you been persecuted for being too forgiving? When have you been persecuted for being too patient or too kind or too generous? You may have been persecuted for your stance on something. I get that. A lot of us have tasted some of that before, usually from other believers, I'd imagine, but sometimes from those that aren't in Christ. But when have you been persecuted for being, you seem a little too like Jesus. Let's get him. See, if you're living out Christ's righteousness in the world, people aren't going to like you. And if you're a people pleaser, or I mean, wait, you um, worship people, then it's going to be tough for you. And as for me, if I'm going to be persecuted, I want it to be clear to the world that they're persecuting me for not being churchy or having stance, church stances. And they, I want them to confuse me with Christ. I want them, to be, I want them whoever's going to persecute me, to be clear that they're persecuting me for, me for being as Christ. But am I too cowardly, I wonder? 
Around the world, this is happening. In Syria, it's happening. We hear stories of families getting pulled out of their homes and a dad put down on his knees and watching his children being mistreated. If he, and if he'd only recant, then his kids would be saved. What would you do? You think and presume upon God's mercy and say, well, God don't understand. I'd recant that I'd get saved again. No, 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 no. Mark chapter 8 tells us that, that if you renounce me, if you are embarrassed of me in front of public, then I'm the same way between you and my, with my father. That's Jesus saying it. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 is a famous one that a lot of people know from Baptist church circles like I knew because we like to put it on liars because the text says that liars don't go to heaven. Here's actually the first word it says though. The cowardly will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So how should we live, loved ones? Jesus actually answers that question in the same passage. Look a few verses down. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 5, look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. Interesting, because he calls himself the light of the world. A city in the hill cannot be hidden, which is like our vision. We want to be a place where people recognize the glory of God. We want to be a people, I mean. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He calls his disciples to, to influence like salt does, to, to live as light, to expose the darkness, even though the darkness will hate the light. This is where we get this song. I'd imagine, did anyone grow up with this song, This Little Light of Mine? I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, right? Hide it under a bushel. Now! I'm gonna, I just like to scream in Sunday school. Don't let Satan it out. We get it from this. But there's great truth to this because it's the teachings of Christ saying, I want you to live as if, you're, as if I'm living through you. And I want others to catch it, but not for your glory, but for my glory. So no one's gonna praise you, but my father will commend you so that many will know that the Father sent me, but also know that people are going to hate you. Some will persecute and seek to extinguish the light, and some will follow the light who is Christ himself. So how were the disciples then, the ones that were hearing the message then of the mountainside in the sermon of Jesus, and disciples today, you and I are supposed to respond. We know that persecution's coming. We know why people are going to persecute the righteous. So how should we respond? Jesus tells us, verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. But actually in verse 10, I'm flipping up on you, Randy, here. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Here's the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Jesus says to rejoice that you're persecuted. How can we be glad that we are hated and mocked and tortured and killed? The answer is found in the promises. Verse 10, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, great is your reward. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who came before you. If you're a note taker, you can write down three things here then. Why, how should we respond to persecution? We should respond with rejoicing. And why should we rejoice? Because of the promises. One, because the kingdom of heaven is yours. Some equate that to power. Like the power to withstand the troubles and tribulations and persecution of life. Jesus says, another reason why we should be able to rejoice is because there is a great reward. So Jesus encouraged his followers to recognize the rewards to come and to value that over than any reward that we can get on this side of heaven. And chapter 6 shows that, the rewards that you can get from other people by being, praying well or fasting well or giving well. He teaches all about that in the book of uh, chapter 6. 
But he's saying, I want you to hold out for God's reward. Now, Christmas is coming. I think of myself as the best gift gift giver in my family. No one's going to beat me. I'm going to win. I love to give gifts and receive them, but I love to get gifts. But the scripture says this, how much better is your heavenly father a better gift giver than you are, dads? So something, Jesus has something that you want. Now you'd think the reward is simply him, because wouldn't he be enough to know that trouble is done and taxes are done and having to be an adult is done, that you get to be a, a child in a sense? But he has some reward that is so good, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rock you. Can you imagine that? And he knows exactly the best thing or someone or temperament or his character quality to give to you, to add you, and we have all eternity to practice it and walk in that and have that with him. Some reward. Why would the disciples be willing to do this and live like this? Because of these promises. Because the kingdom of heaven is yours and great is your reward. And then lastly, Jesus says, because you're in good company. The prophets, apostles, and Jesus, they all suffered because of righteousness. What's happening to you then, Jesus is saying, is has happened to godly people before you. Jesus said that this has been happening since God was speaking through people to people. The prophets. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see an account of some of these prophets. Chapters 11, verse 36 through 38. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put, to, put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. What an awesome line. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Isn't, that's a very different kind of Christianity than maybe many of us were taught. In light of the saints who've lived and adored suffering for the righteousness sake, the author of Hebrews then encourages his readers to persevere just in the next section, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, in light of what we just heard, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and it does easily, doesn't it, loved ones? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, which includes persecution. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, joy, suffering together. Jesus tells his disciples to rejoice in the midst of suffering. He himself did that. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, loved ones. Awesome instruction. In time, Jesus' disciples, besides Judas Iscariot, the, one here, the ones hearing this message from Jesus on that hillside actually lived out Christ's command of rejoicing. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They just got done sharing the gospel with anywhere they were going. The religious leaders didn't like that, so they had them um, tortured. <clears throat> the apostles left the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They worshiped God for their privilege to suffer. These disciples thought... Jesus was worth it, that truth was worth it, that non-believers coming to know Jesus is worth it. But for the disciples, it didn't actually just stop at this account. It actually, if you look at church history, besides Judas who took his own life, and Matthias replaces him, 11 of, the, of those 12 die, martyrs' death, and then John they try to kill in oil. They boil oil, it didn't work on him, so then he is exiled into an island called Patmos, and he dies there. Why would they die for a lie? They lived out what they saw. 
They testify with their own eyes and they bore witness and they write down their letters to new believers and to those that need to know this truth and they died for the truth. They died for their Savior like many before them. You know, isn't this response, this command of rejoicing, it's just otherworldly. It's like this command from Jesus that seems so impossible. It's supernatural. And yet we know that people have done it over and over again. It's recorded for us around the world that it's happening. It reminds me of Sarah, who was leading us in worship earlier today, reminded us of Paul and Silas singing in prison together. What were they singing, you think? I'm sure Silas led because I bet Paul's like real pitchy. They were proud to sing this little light of mine happy. Later, Jesus' disciple Peter shared some encouragement of rejoicing as he's writing to new believers. This is actually a letter written to Christians, which is in now in modern day Turkey. He writes to them long ago, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering because they're facing persecution as though something strange were happening to you because it's been taught about. But rejoice, does that teaching sound familiar? That you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, you're happy. Who taught Peter that? For the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Ultimately, why is it true that happier the persecuted for righteousness or Christ's sake? Because persecution is like, um, is like a confirmation or a proof to self of being members of the kingdom of God that you were counted worthy to suffer. To be accused of being, uh, you're too much like Jesus is the greatest, greatest compliment, isn't it, loved ones? I have not faced severe persecution. Some of you may have. Mostly because of my cultural context, I guess. But that might change. But Christians right now around the world are suffering and being persecuted. And, and I, I thought about sharing some of these stories with you. But you can look them up for yourself. Persecution.com or opendoors.org gives story after story. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a famous book. There's others that have come after that of stories of the martyrs. According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions. This also includes people who are Christians. According to the United States Department of uh, State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution for their governments or surrounding neighbors because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Opendoors.org teaches and shows the statistics around the idea that every month 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 Christian churches or properties are destroyed. 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians. I've tasted very little of that. Some of it from other people when we're trying to demonstrate mercy in in our adoption. I shared that with you a few weeks ago. People just didn't get it. And the biggest attack I ever got from that is like, why are you using world's resources by having all these children? Or aren't you happy enough? Or that kind of stuff, you know. But no one's ever said, choose your daughter or Jesus. And that's happening. And it should matter to us. And I'm going to conclude and we're going to get some prayer together here, but... It should matter to us because persecution is actually a communal experience. Now, in the United States, we think of our faith as individualistic. It's private or personal, especially if you grew up in high church. You don't want to talk a lot about that with other people sometimes. My heritage has some of that in the background, deep background, Methodist, or some people that grew up in um, Christian Reformed Church, like in my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Everything's about private and personal. 
so that no persecutions had because no one's saying a word or doing a deed. What would the what would the Christians around the world have to say about that? You know, but persecution is actually not just an individual. Uh, Christianity is not just an individual thing. It's not per- private. It's personal, but it's also corporate. And persecution, therefore, is a communal experience because it's the body of Christ, the family of Christ, your brothers and sisters in the faith that are right now suffering. Some are meeting in secret. India, persecution is exploding. We see it into China. Of course, we see this in the Middle East. And everywhere there's persecution, the church grows because people are counting the cost and they want Christ. Africa, we're seeing the same. And our enemy is, is not Islam, if I may be so bold. Our enemy is the enemy. Darkness, but the enemy can use those false teachings and those things. It can use those things as instruments, just as the Redeemer uses us as instruments of light. Okay? So, what should we do, loved ones? We should pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. I challenge you this month to spend time on that. November 1st and November 8th, a lot of churches around the world have um, persecuted Church Sunday. Orphan Care Sunday was on November 8th this year. At a minimum, we should pray for believers who are suffering. The scriptures teach us this remember those that are in prison. And then Jesus, of course, because Matthew chapter 5 through 7 always steps up. It's just an impossible teaching to live by. That shows that we need Christ so desperately. We can't be good enough. Jesus takes it up another notch in Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. He says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. What's wrong with him? It's what a world finds, an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. When he goes to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't only just pray for himself or pray for his disciples. He says, I pray for all those who ever believe in me because of their testimony. He's praying for, praying for non-believers at that point, enemies at that point. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Who is he praying for there? His persecutors, right, loved ones? And so we see both, that Christians ought to do both. We're supposed to pray for other brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering. And we're supposed to pray for the persecutors. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to give you a moment right now just to be in silence and pray. And then one of our elders, Alan Folkard, will come and pray. And then as a symbol and sign of our unity, we're going to stand and sing a song of um, commitment to the Lord. So take some time and pray. Oh, gracious and mighty God, we are so thankful for the truth from your word that Jason brought to us today. And right now, Father, we remember Hebrews 13:3, where we're told to remember the prisoners as if we were in prison and those who are ill-treated. And we are grateful that as the body of Southbridge and as our friends who are visiting today and as our family, even those from other countries, Lord, have a chance to gather with us, we lift up those who are being persecuted. We pray, Lord, for, first of all, your protection. Won't you surround them with a hedge of protection, Lord, against the principalities of darkness that would come against them? We pray, Lord, for your great provision, that you would give them peace, God, that they would have the words to speak in the most desperate of situations, Lord. Would you allow them to point to the truth of your gospel? It would not only the land be changed because the people are changed, Lord, but would our world be changed? And we think about the numbers of 200,000 around this world, Lord. We know that many are women and children. And we know specifically women are targeted for the violence that can be brought against them. And we pray, God, in those most desperate situations that you would give them comfort, that they would look to you and call out to you as their Father in heaven. 
And we think about the children who may go through great and tremendous loss, Lord. Would you deepen their faith? Would you allow them to have brothers and sisters that would come around them and raise them and provide for them? And Father, in the most bizarreness of situations, we pray for those who would persecute our brothers and sisters. We ask you, God, to put them on our hearts so that we could remember that the truth of your gospel applies as much to them as it does to us. Father, just as you have forgiven us for our sins because we repented and we called out to you, we pray that for them, that they would repent, Lord, that they would see something, they would see an ununderstandable peace in the person's eyes that they persecute, and that they would wonder enough to find the truth. And God, we are grateful for your promise that we will spend eternity in heaven in fellowship with those believers. And Lord, we will be worshiping you. And we ask this in your mighty name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.